Right, uh, welcome to Chinwag with me, Mike Laverick. Um, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm <laughs> just blanked. Oh dear. That's probably the first time I've really blanked. In fact, I could talk about blanking on a podcast. So, With me today is a man whose name I'm going to struggle to pronounce. So I'm going to get him to pronounce his name for me. His name is... Guru Simran Khalsa. I'm going to call him GS because I, I obviously can't pronounce his name as well as he could say it. Yeah, I first which is met, perfect. <laughs> I first met you, I think, on a uh, Tech Field day um, in Silicon Valley. I think that's the first time I met you in person. I don't know. Maybe I've, I've met you before. but I think we actually met first at uh, VMworld. Did we? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think if it was, I think, 2010, maybe 2011. How drunk was I? Well, it was kind of the middle of the day, so all I'm right, so hoping that it wasn't. At all. <laughs> Little do they know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you meet a lot of people at VMworld, but yes. I think when you're in a smaller group, people stick out more in your, in your mind. So I remember, I think yeah. uh, we were at some restaurant, which wasn't very good, actually, that uh, Stephen Foskett had taken us to. It was meant to be a great restaurant, but I didn't really rate it. And you came <laughs> along and joined, joined the group because we were not far from you in Santa Clara. Whereabouts... Were you, did you happen to be in Silicon Valley uh, that week, or were you living there at the time? Or, um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, I think I must have just been visiting or something. Yeah, because you live in New Mexico, is that right? Correct. Yeah, I live in Santa Fe. I work in Albuquerque. All right. Okay, Albuquerque. Yeah. That's a place I've always wanted to go to, yeah. and uh, but people tell me it's not such a great town. I don't know. Uh, I would, if you're going to come to New Mexico, I would much, uh, I'd higher suggest uh, Santa Fe. Uh, okay. I mean, you're going to have to. Oh yeah, you're going to have to come through Albuquerque because that's where you'll fly into. But yeah, Santa Fe is is much more charming. All right, okay. It's the re there's a song uh, by a band in the UK I like, uh, which aren't around anymore. They're an '80s band called Prefab Sprang. I doubt they made it to the US because they <laughs> they barely made it to the UK to be honest. But they had a song which um, had the word. Albuquerque, and I just went, oh, <laughs> where is this place? I've got to go, you know. It's kind of, it's up there with, um, you know, the film uh, that Vin Vendors did called Paris, Texas? You know that movie at all? It's got I, Harry I, Dean I Stanton in it, and it's got this fantastic oh, okay. slide guitar uh, soundtrack all the way through. It's just okay. Like, got me into wanting to play a slide guitar. But, yeah. um, so that I've always wanted to go to Paris, Texas because of that, but apparently it's like a one-horse town or something. Yeah, so, I've never even heard of it, so yeah, I, yeah. I would imagine it's kind of a small place. Well, it's just the thing that's always funny is when they, um, on TV, they always put on, like American shows, Paris, France, just right. in case you're not sure where Paris is. And I always say to Carmel, it's, it's for people who think Paris is actually in Texas. So they have to put yeah. Paris, France, so you don't get the two confused. One has a lot of French people in a big tower, one doesn't look like that at all, you know. So. Oh, I mean, one of the interesting, I, I don't want to get too far off topic, but one of the interesting things in New Mexico is they're about 60 miles east of Santa Fe is a little town called Las Vegas. Hmm. And so if you're in New Mexico, you know, you'll say, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas. And people will ask, oh, you know, New Mexico or, you know, Nevada. Right. But anywhere outside of New Mexico... There's only one Las Vegas. Wouldn't so. it be funny if somebody paid for a really expensive, all-inclusive holiday to to Las Vegas, but they got the wrong one? That that would be pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, let's actually talk about something that's not uh, that is IT related or technology related. 
Um, as ever, good. we've we've had like a number of kind of emails going backwards and forwards. So we've got uh, I've got my little text file open with the topics, and the first thing we're going to talk about is cloud and uh, ask the question why isn't anybody using it, or even ask the question how do we measure how many people are using cloud? Um, to say that not many people are using it, um, yeah. but I guess what this conversation is going to all be about is what are the barriers for people adopting the cloud is it technology is it security that's what ed lucky would say is it <laughs> is it cost you know um so is it next yeah. year that's going to be the year of the cloud that's what i need to know <laughs> <laughs> well i i think i mean one of the things that's the part of why i brought it up is is being part of being part of the the larger vmware community the kind of I don't want to call it like the in crowd, but you know, people that are really enthusiastic and passionate about virtualization and VMware and and those kind of things. Being part of that community and seeing all this tech, you know, seeing all the cool new technologies, uh, you know, vCloud Director, uh, VCAC, all all those things come out, and then living in a place like New Mexico, and only I'm only aware of two customers who are using uh, VCD, right, and and. and and that's not to say that there aren't other customers that it might be a good fit for, but really those are the two customers that it's the best fit for, mm. you know, that, that, that they actually have that use case. And so it's, it's seeing it on one end and then not seeing it so much in the real world and, and trying to, to mesh up those two so, things. Well, what yeah. you don't realize is in every other state of the Americas, uh, <laughs> apart from New Mexico, it's the biggest, fastest growing product that VMware have. And it just so <laughs> happens that you live in New Mexico there for some reason or another. Nobody's in, uh, no, I yeah. think that would obviously be a bit duplicitous to actually make yeah. that suggestion. But the difficult thing with that, with perceptions is, is that it's always rarefied by your own what you get exactly. to see, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I think we, we're saying offline, I was speaking to... Um, uh, Christian on the the VSoup uh, podcast a couple of months ago, and he was saying in Bergen I don't really see any VCloud director, and I said, well, that's Bergen yeah. for you, you know. I yeah. don't see and much. It, I don't see much VCloud director in Kirkby and Ashfield in Nottinghamshire. In fact, I don't see any of it at all, except right. in my lab where I'm running it. So, but uh, right. I think maybe a, a better sort of way of looking at it is talking about what the barriers are to adoption. And I, right. It occurred to me why you mentioned it is to talk about cloud as if all it is is virtualization is quite narrow, isn't it? I mean, look at people like Facebook or Google. Right. They offer a service which is, I would define as cloud. It's an application which is only available online. It's globally available. But I don't know how much virtualization of anything they do because whenever you see the insides of Google or Facebook's data center, it's row after row of pizza boxes without any right. covers on, just uh racks of motherboards so you know is that cloud does it necessarily need to even be virtualization to be defined as cloud i don't know right yeah and that's definitely both of your points i mean the point about you know not seeing it so much in new mexico which is understandable that's you know i definitely get that and then the idea too that you know virtualization doesn't always equal cloud mm -hmm. it's i mean i think i think for most people it would you know i think for your average enterprise or um you know, small to medium business uh, virtualization is kind of has to be part of your cloud journey. But you know, for a, a company like a Facebook or a Google, and I, I would imagine there's other companies as well out there that that doesn't always have to be the case. Sure. I mean, I, uh, I've got 
a firm that I use for a co-location. Co-location is just one aspect of their business, selling Maxspace, and I would have thought that's quite a large part of what they do. But they also sell virtual servers online, within which right. you can have a fully functional web server with all the controls you like, and they will spin that up for you. I guess those companies a few years ago would have uh, offered you a hosted solution where you're on a shared web server and you just got a virtual directory. A lot of those guys are now saying, well, don't just have a virtual directory. Here, have a virtual machine. Right. Um, my my wife, she had a blog with a local ISP here. And, um, well, she didn't have a blog. She had some web space. Okay. And we wanted her to have a blog, which requires PHP. Right. So they said, that's fine. We'll transfer you to this uh, service that's got PHP on. And then I went to try and set up the latest version of WordPress. And it said, I'm sorry, the version of PHP you've got is not compatible. Right, okay. Can we have PHP upgraded? No, you can't because you're sharing that box with another 150 people and we don't know what the consequences are. Uh. And I'm like, you're kidding me that you're selling this as a service on a version of PHP that's like three or four revisions behind and you can't do an upgrade because you have no idea what the knock-on effects are on the other 150 people sharing this. Well, what kind of service are you provide? And we yeah. went, we went somewhere else. I said to Carmel. Yeah, I would I would hope so. We went to a place called Dreamhost instead, where where my last two blogs were, where RTFM right. and where Mike Laverick is. And like it took me five minutes to set up the blog, and we said, yeah. we set up a new domain name, a .com domain, not a .co.uk domain. And we're we're kissing those people goodbye. But it amazed me that some people were so old school that way. But I would have thought putting that lousy ISP to one side. I would have forced most of them do sell a virtual machine because that means whatever the customer wants, they can have installed and it doesn't affect anybody else. That's the right kind of point of, of doing it that way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and it seems, I think that's the same way that the, uh, the vCloud hybrid service works mm-hmm. is they're, you know, they're offering, you know, the, the first level that they offer that at is at the uh, the VM level, and then you can have a dedicated host if that's what you want. Mm. You know, same kind of, you know, but that that's the minimum level that you're going to get. Yeah, it's... What, do you, what do you make of uh, VCHS? I must make sure I don't call it VHS. VCHS. <laughs> um, I've heard some... VCHS. Yeah, VCHS. Is, yeah. that, is that a service that there is a use case for? As opposed to running vCloud Director internally, for argument's yeah. sake. I would definitely think that there's there's a use case for that. And I think with the initial feature set that they're talking about, I think it's the, the use case is a little bit more limited because, you know, they're, the, at least initially, they weren't talking about having things like um, the ability to run VC ops and, you know, or something like SRM, things like that. Mm. But... I definitely think it's a good stepping stone for people to get into the cloud. Um, one one uh, devil's advocate question I could ask, and I work for VMware, but is yeah. there are there has been vCloud service providers around for at least two or three years, probably even more. Right. Um, how is VCHS going to be any different from what you could have got from a provider in the last two or three years? So I mean, my point is, if there'd been a usage case, for VCHS, why wasn't there a usage case two or three years ago with Island or Stratagen or and I think, v, uh, some vCloud service providers, uh, yeah, SunGuard it, or whatever, you know, Terry Mark. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a good question. I, I think uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the launch event. Um, and so, you know, we were able to ask 
some of these questions to some of the people there, mm-hmm. and the th- and they they spoke to it a bit too because I think VMware is very aware that that it, that's probably the first question on a lot of people's minds is you know wait a minute you guys have done this service provider thing for a few years why are you getting into the business, mm-hmm. um, and I think part of it is that they you know for some people dealing with one vendor even if it's the one vendor's technology on the back end dealing with one vendor and knowing you know th- there's a level of comfort with that that you know I, I buy a vSphere from VMware and I'll get my cloud services from them as well mm-hmm. um, and I, I think there there's a decent argument to be made that VMware are the only ones who can do it the way that VMware wants to do it you know if it's in the hands of a partner how they right, choose then, to configure or set something up, VMware right. can't regulate that. You know, right? If they want to put a different front end on it, if they want to add different functionality, if that you know, whatever it is, is it, that they want, it's, it's not McDonald's cloud. It's not like right. VMware can say, when you walk into the store, this is what the menu will look like, and here's all your advertising. It's very much exactly here's the license to provide this service. I must admit, I've noticed, I've only really dealt with the clouds I've dealt with is Island, Stratagen, who are quite well, none in the UK. I don't know about elsewhere. Um, right. Our own re-cloud evaluation, which isn't really a production cloud, it's just a tester, and now BCHS. And each one I've configured vCloud Connector with, right. there's been subtle differences in the way the networking is being done. Certainly right. there was differences between Stratagen and Island, but maybe the appeal of something like vCloud Hybrid Service is whether you buy it in East, West, Coast that setup and configuration will be the same. And if once it's in Europe, whether right. I buy that in Europe and whether I buy that in the US, it's the same. But you would hope a company as the size of uh, Sungard or uh, Terrymark would be equally consistent in right. how they do it. Maybe the other, I guess the other thing is if, if it's our software, in terms of upgrades and patches and planning when that's gonna happen based on software releases, maybe we can do that better than a service provider who doesn't get the technology until GA. Right. So maybe if you own your own code, maybe that gives you a little bit of something secret source that you could offer that, like you said, you know, it's VMware software from VMware. What could possibly right. go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think there's there's an argument to be said for that. Um, yeah. I think also there's an argument for going with a service provider because if you have a relationship with Island, that you've oh, had yeah. for the last four or five years and you get along with them and you love them and they've really helped you, what would make yeah. you want to um, jump ship? Is it yeah. purely going to be because one is cheaper or more expensive than the other? Or is it features? Or is it something to do with the relationship you have with that organization? Right. You know. And I, I think at this point it doesn't... I, I don't see anything in particular that, you know, if, if I was... If I, I was using Island or I had a customer who was using Island and they were happy with them, you know, I, I don't see anything in VChess that would make me recommend switching. But that's not to say that, you know, as they as VMware continues to add features to and functionality to VChess that that would always be the case. Mm-hmm. So, one thing I've been thinking of doing is using the capacity I have in. Uh, these cloud spaces to actually run my lab environment right. with, with nested ESX. Right. And I've, I've approached a couple of these cloud people and said, have you ever thought of creating a home lab, but in vCloud Director, 
So people like you and me who need a lab for a short period of time could just spin one up, use it, and then blow it away. Right. Uh, and I would I said to them, you know, you could use this as a kind of lost leader, as a way of bringing people to your business. If they have this wonderful, good experience of your company with a home lab, maybe when they start to think seriously about running uh, a workload, a, v a virtual machine, a VSP, a VM, in a cloud, maybe it's to you that they turn first because you've been the first one right. to do it for them. But I must admit, I've not had an awful lot of success in convincing them of this idea. I think they what? see it as a lot of work and a lot of effort for not a guaranteed return. And right. that's why they're not doing it. The other problem I have with it is there are settings like promiscuous mode, all the security settings that I right. can't touch from vCloud Director. So although I might be able to say enable virtualization of the host, get the software installed, whether I can then get it to communicate to anything or get a VM on top of it to communicate right. to anything without access to virtual center, I'm kind of stuck. Yeah. So I need, I need a widget that says allow promiscuous mode or allow non-secure mode for communication out of this thing because it's a lab environment rather than it being... Because you can't touch those as an organizational admin, I can't get to them. And, right. Uh, oddly enough, when I ask Ireland for full administrative control of their virtual center, they don't really say no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess what I could probably do is, on a case by case basis, spin it up, and then say, "Can you find my port group that's being created by the VCL Edge, and can you right. just for me change the settings for it?" And right. You only have to do that once. Because uh, if yeah. I do a redeploy of the VCL Edge, it should come up with the same settings. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, less about yeah. me. Yeah, was there, at one point, I remember a couple months ago, there was somebody, some service provider that was offering, I don't think it was that exactly, but they were offering some kind of cloud-based lab service, right? Bare metal cloud. Right. Yeah, I, um, Alistair Cook, who wrote Autolab, who I'm sure right. you know well yeah. through the brown bags, yeah. a company called Bare Metal Cloud in... Fort Lauderdale, I think they're based in, took his auto lab and then cloned it with Clonezilla, the kind of open source cloning tool. And you, right. can, you can get a dedicated piece of hardware spun up with ESX on it, with auto lab running on top of it. it. Takes them about half an hour to do the cloning. So there is one organization that's doing it that I know of, I know of but yeah. I, don't, we, I had like um, on MikeLaverick.com first 100 subscribers gets the service for three months for free or something. There was some sort of, or maybe right. they got $100 worth of credit to try right. and promote it. But I must go back to those guys and say, how did that get on? Did that drive more interest? Right. Um, but uh, actually, it's funny that we got, didn't intend to talk about this, but <laughs> um, as always, the way with the chin wag you go off and the yeah. is a lot of people do actually want the kit underneath the desk. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. It, are you are you a person who would like it in the cloud, or do you like the kit underneath the desk? I, I would I actually wouldn't mind having it in the cloud. Um, I I'm very fortunate in that I have w with my work I've got a nice lab um, that I have access to, and and when I'm in the office I I can physically touch it. You know, it's not a remote lab or something like that. So so I don't have as much of a a need to have a home lab. Mm -hmm. um, and I think. I think, though, I'd really want one. I mean, there is something about, you know, I, I, I'm an IT guy, you know, a, a, an old sysadmin, whatever. I, I have that, that inclination to want to be able to touch my hardware. Um, <laughs> so to speak. 
That's not yes. a euphemism. Yes. <laughs> I have an inclination to touch my hardware, right? Okay, moving swiftly on. Yeah. <laughs> I once pulled Eric Sleuth up on using the phrase, uh, Mike Laverick has got a great tool. And I said, probably better say that Mike Laverick has a great utility because that phrase could mean something totally different else in another context. But to pull the conversation back to another yeah. zone... So my in my in my current situation though you know with my how big my house is and two you know two little kids at home stuff like that yeah I I definitely would want uh, I like the idea of doing the cloud based thing I I think if you know if anything ever changed and I needed to go back to having a home lab as opposed to being able to work with my my work lab um, I I would go the cloud route anyway. Let's try and get focused on this question and deal deal with it, and then we'll move switch sure. on. Yeah. Isn't it all down to use cases, whether something is being adopted quickly or not quickly? And if you don't have the use case, then you don't do it. So, Definitely. That's, that's my opinion. I mean, it, so what are the use cases that, are, that would compel an organization to take a workload and put it in the public cloud, if, that, if it is public cloud as opposed to private cloud? To you, what are those use cases? I mean, for public cloud, I, I would think it's probably a lot more. I, I could see kind of somewhat the way that uh, VM uh, vSphere started, you know, test dev things like that, where mm-hmm. you've got what really amounts to a very bursty workload. Um, in some places, I've seen they have test dev environments that are static, mm-hmm. but usually they're the kind of things that are getting built up and torn down regularly and as as they go through development cycles QA cycles things like that you have uh, a, a lot of flexibility and need um, so that's definitely one use case that I could think of um, for I, I, really to me where where public makes sense is is if you have if your workload isn't static right. you know if you're if you know that you're going to be adding a certain number of hosts or a certain number of uh, of VMs on a regular basis, you know you you look at your growth stand, you know your growth and and it's linear. It's something and it's kind of a constant. It doesn't fluctuate up and down. Mm. Then doing a private cloud, I think, still makes sense. Mm. Um, I mean, I was on a, a course a couple of years ago with um, on uh, learning about Microsoft Hyper V two thousand and eight. Uh-huh. sponsored by Microsoft and it was right. a bunch of on the course it's um, resellers and small to medium sized businesses get so many credits to attend these courses so there was a lot of I work in an SMB and I sell Microsoft's SMB to people and stuff like that and right. there was a debate in class about is cloud the death of SMB services um, right. and I was saying it could be because if I'm, if I'm an SMB do I want the capex costs of having to buy equipment and host it in my own terra firma where I may not have the space to do it when I can have these resources that I want in the cloud? And there was a little bit of worry amongst them about, well, is that the death of my business model? And I said to them, no, it's a change to your business model. Um, You now have to offer what you've always offered in case customers want to carry on doing that, but also say, well, we have this other thing called cloud and let me be the person who helps you get your stuff in there and once it's in there, I'll be the person who helps manage it, monitor it for right. you. So yep. rather than trying to see it as a threat to their business, they should see it as a business opportunity 
uh, which oh, yeah. they did seem to grasp. I mean, it wasn't saying that they needed to become a clown provider, but they right. needed to manage that process. Yeah. Because customers will go, ooh, should I be in the cloud? What cloud? Where should that cloud be? What are my legal uh, right. um, issues? And I said, that's the kind of engagement you're going to have with the customer alongside of, well, you want a three-node cluster on, on vSphere Essentials, yada, yada. You know, so you're going to have to be able to switch and move. And you're going to have to be able to say, well, look, you've got some VMs that are running here on your own kit. There's nothing stopping us taking them to the cloud environment. And this is how you would do it, you know. So right. be the facilitator to some degree. But anyway, yeah. I think we've probably yacked about that subject enough already. So yeah, our, our next our next topic, um, Project Phoenix. What does it mean for the average vSphere vCloud admin and where do you start? Perhaps a good place to start is to explain for the uninitiated what the heck Project Phoenix is, because there may be some people that have not heard of it. So yeah. I'll leave that to you. What's Project yeah, Phoenix sure. about and why do you think it's important? So uh, Project Phoenix is uh, an, it's actually a novel written by uh, Gene Kim, and I, I always blank on the other two gentlemen's names who wrote it, but uh, Gene Kim was one of the authors, and it's... It, it's kind of a unique IT book in that it, it's written in a novel format, and it, it tells the story of a guy who uh, inherits a very dysfunctional IT organization that's right in the middle of rolling out this big development project called Project Phoenix, okay. um, this new application that's, that the business needs kind of in order to save their business. And, and the thing that, what, what I think... I, what I enjoyed about it and what a lot, a lot of other people have enjoyed about it, especially in the IT field, is you, you can read about the problems that this organization is experiencing and the people that are in the organization and recognize a lot of them. I mean, you, you look at it and you go, I know that guy. I worked with a guy that is exactly, you know, that's that guy. It's a different name, but, you know, I, I worked with that guy and he caused me all the same problems that this guy did. <laughs> And so, but the novel walks you through the ideas of kind of, kind of the learning experience of the, the, the DevOps movement, the idea of, of a lot closer integration between development and operations and, and how, to, how to make those things work and work better, um, work together to make a business more successful. Mm. So I, I found it, it was one of the more fascinating reads that I've had in a long time. I, I read it in about, I think, in two nights. Oh, um, okay. um, so it's, it's a compelling read. And compared with most, like, I think if, if it had been just a book about DevOps, I, it probably would have taken me months to get through it because it's, you know, it, it's not, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a topic that I was interested in, but not necessarily in the typical IT, for, you know, the textbook, whatever, you know, learn this part about it, learn this part about it, learn this part about it format. Mm. And uh, they're talking about uh, making a uh, DevOps, I think they call it the DevOps cookbook, which mm. is basically going to be more of your typical IT book about DevOps. And now that I've read the Phoenix Project, I have a basic enough understanding of, of the ideas of DevOps that I think now I'm ready for a technical book about it, mm. you know, I mean, an actual really how-to. I'm not really sure whether I myself could define what DevOps actually is succinctly. I mean, you yeah. say a cookbook. I mean, how does that? How does DevOps relate to something like ITIL or or whatever? I think 
you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how it relates to ITIL. I mean, I, I think there is some overlap with it, the ideas of change management, um, change control, things like that. Um, I, I'm not super familiar with ITIL. I, I'll, a lot of my exposure to it is is hearing people complain about it on Twitter. Well, yeah, exactly. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope you know, that especially... doesn't, DevOps doesn't replace ITIL and DevOps becomes the ITIL of the next generation right. so what i mean if you had to explain to somebody who didn't know anything about devops what it is right well it, it to me one of the biggest things that it is is the is breaking down the silos between development and operations right um and, and getting in some ways you know getting both of them to understand the the per the, their purpose in the organization and how they work together to to solve that because mm. in a lot of ways the the traditional way that you see development and operations work, and this is, at least in my experience from the organizations that I've worked with, mm. is development works on, you know, they, they work up on a piece of code that the business wants. And, you know, they get to the point where, hey, we're comfortable with how this works. And then they basically like throw it, just chuck it over a wall to operations and say, hey, make it work. And they'll, you know, and then operations, you know, they they try and you know they they install it they try and put it in and they're like well it, it doesn't work and dev's like well you know it worked in development i don't know why it doesn't <laughs> operations you know there's that works I, I don't know, yeah i don't know if you've seen that that there's a a meme of a little girl standing in front of a burning house and there's uh you know i think there's firefighters and stuff trying to put the fire out and the tagline is um it, it worked in development ops problem now oh, you know okay <laughs> So, I, mean, so I, I think but maybe, then, maybe in a way, ITIL is, I, I mean, I've never done ITIL exams, never even studied for them. Uh, yeah. But it seems to be more kind of guidelines of how you project manage something or uh, procedures that you should go through that make sure that things are done in a consistent way that's recorded and audited and traceable and yada, yada. Whereas right. DevOps seems to be more of a concept about the way we work has to change. Well, and they, they definitely, as part of DevOps, like in, in the Phoenix project, they walk through um, some steps of, you know, like how to make things better. Mm. And, and I've actually, I, I went back and read another, I'm in the process of reading another one of Gene Kim's books. Um, again, he wrote it with a couple of other people. Mm. Um, and I'm going to blank on the name of it, but it's, it, it was, it, it's kind of like a predecessor to DevOps. And it's, I don't know if it's, it's done somewhat like in the ITIL framework mm. as far as things like change management, but it's, it's not quite as, as strict as, as from what I've seen what ITIL is. You know, ITIL seems like, a, to me, a very constrictive framework, but the, the, um, the DevOps ideas are around things like, I mean, one of the big things is, is change management. Mm. And and the importance of change management in an organization, and and I would imagine that you know if, if you've interacted with any kind of large larger IT shop, you've seen the negative impacts of change management. Of you know when you've got you know ten admins all working in an environment, whenever something breaks, usually why it broke is because something changed, and it's usually something that somebody changed. And and whether that was somebody in development or somebody in operations, you know. You change something, and if you're not careful, it's going to break. Somebody, so, I, I don't know whether it was somebody from EMC who I heard say this. I, I don't know where I heard it, where it came from. 
but they they said something like we have to have process processes in our organization because if we didn't have processes nothing would get done and i didn't really i wasn't in a position to ask how do you mean nothing would get done but I right. think what he was getting at was without a process that has 10 steps with steps one to three being your responsibility and steps four to five being my responsibility nobody then knows who's responsible for what where that process is and then who it gets hand o- handed over to right um so maybe the reason for change management isn't not just the too many cooks spoil the broth um and and too many cross-person purposes admin changes but simply in a large organization without a process that says this is how you do this particular task nobody would know everybody would be making it up or right. or if processes would simply just stop because somebody would go well it's not my is it my responsibility i thought it was bob who was in charge for doing that so without yeah. a process things just don't happen and maybe yeah. maybe in these large organizations it's better to have a process, even if it is dysfunctional and up, <laughs> yeah. than have no process at all because that means nothing ever happens. You know, at right. least it happens badly, but it happens. Right. I don't know. Is that something you've seen? Definitely. You know, if if you don't have change management, change management, and you don't have processes, I mean, that's that's definitely the the worst of both worlds because you're, you know, not only are things. You know, things, everything happens differently every time. If it does happen, it's, you know, you're setting up servers and instead of, you know, getting a templatized approach, you know, you're getting a whole bunch of snowflakes. You know, you have, um, you know, everything's unique. And it's, the, to me, the thing with, with change management is, and, and kind of selling it to traditional, to a lot of IT organizations, is they're, a lot of IT guys are used to that kind of cowboy mentality of of operating where, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you, you want me to change, change something? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go and I'll make a change. And if it breaks something, then then that's my job is I go in and I fix that. Mm-hmm. Where if you think about it, that that's all just wasted effort. If if by thinking it through a little bit beforehand and planning it, you are you the cause of the problem. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just fix the problem that I created for everyone, you know. Yeah. And What's then that? demonstrate what a great troubleshoot I am fixing my exactly. own problems. <laughs> you know, like people think that the idea of being in IT is being a good troubleshooter and, you know, like a good firefighter. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you could just avoid the fires in the first place, you know, and work on being a better administrator, you know, make sure, you know, do, th- do more things to make your environment more stable, more functional. Um, at I the think, end of the day, you know, end I of the think, day that... Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. you go ahead. Sorry, I was interrupting. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing, the, the other realization in DevOps is the idea, and I don't know if this is strictly DevOps, but it's just becoming more popular or more, IT is becoming more aware of it, is this idea that at the end of the day, IT is there to serve the business. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that this even ties back into the into cloud and, you know, shadow IT and stuff like that, is at the end of the day, IT is there to serve the business. And if... If IT isn't, you know, if systems or development or whoever aren't serving that business, the business is going to find those services somewhere else. Yeah. So, I, think, I mean, I hear this an awful lot, and I've said it myself. But I think, I think, just hearing you say it for the, again, it does sort of make me think, like, why, why do we have to say that the role of IT is to service the business? Because when you think of other things that a business is made up of, research and development. Um, manufacturing distribution 
It's not like the people who get your product from one place to another go, you know what, we should really be servicing the needs of the business. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just does it. But why is it that IT needs to tell itself well, we need I, to be there actually... to service the business when other aspects of the business, sales, seems to know exactly what its role is? Yeah. Uh, and does everyone, what, it, what is the role of sales in the organization? Yeah. What, let's have this yeah. philosophical debate. Why have we got ourselves in that position where yeah. we feel we have to state it? Why isn't it just? Is, it's a that's a it's a really good question. That you know why hasn't IT you know why haven't more IT organizations realized that earlier? You know why why and I mean maybe it has to do with the technology of IT that we're we were the only people that understood it really well. And so it was kind of a black box to the business and, you know, they had to ask us for things and they got what, they got whatever we gave them. Mm -hmm. And so they, they were okay with that. And to some extent they're starting to realize that there's other places that they could potentially get some of those services now. Mm -hmm. um, well, when you, know, you, when you yeah. think of that example of distribution that I gave, yeah. A lot of companies that now manufacture things do not distribute their own products. They use somebody else to... But unless you're a exactly. very large supermarket like Tesco is in the UK, right. you don't have your own distribution chain. You've offloaded that. You've outsourced it to somebody else. You know? Right, because it's not one of your core competencies. Mm. And that's... I, I think, you know, I think businesses are starting to real... You know, that, that if anything, is is where some of the growth of cloud comes from is organizations look at their IT you know, their, their IT and they go, you know, why couldn't somebody else do what, what these guys are doing? You know, mm -hmm. it's not uh, us, us being good systems administrators doesn't help us, you know, sell cereal or whatever it is that we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? So I've got, I've got this theory and I'll pass it out to you and then I'll give you a chance to respond and then we'll move on. Yeah. I look at, I mean, I'm, I've been in the industry for 20 odd years started working in IT when I was about 23, 1993, which, you know, and I've been using computers since a teenager. So I right. had the first PC in the house kind of thing, played on an Atari when I was like 12 or 11 or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and when I look at our industry, it's an extremely new industry still, even though it's we are where we are. When you yeah. compare that to aviation, right, is the example I always use. And maybe this is just the natural process of a new industry that comes about that back back when aviation was got started, there were hundreds and thousands of different little airlines that you could yep. fly with. It's not like that now. There are these massive intercontinental airlines like United, Delta, BA, Qantas. Well, nearly every country has one because to establish a national airline a lot of them started off as actually being owned by the state right? and then yeah. being spun out as private companies once they were kind of self-financing. right? But uh, I kind of look at maybe the era that we've grown up in is the era where um, men would build bits of wood and then chuck themselves off mountainsides and in the hope that it would fly. Yeah. Um, and we all tried that. and uh, But there's this kind of consolidation going on and, you know, I don't know how to explain this succinctly, but maybe the next 20 years or 30 years, the idea of a company having its own computers and one or two guys or 10 guys managing them just doesn't exist anymore. That was a model that worked for a certain period of time and it just becomes defunct over right. a very short period of time. I mean... Well, I and I know. think, yeah, I, I wouldn't... 
I mean, who knows? You know, ten, twenty years—that's especially in in a time and in an industry like ours. That's it's a long time. But but it's it, the rest taking, of your career. Think of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but taking your analogy of, of of the aircraft industry, you know, you do have uh, airlines which you know would translate into service providers, and, and I, I think we'll continue to see the growth of service providers and them being used more and more. But then you do also still have um, corporate aviation. You know, there's large companies that have their own, you know, it makes sense for them to have their own jets and their own maintenance staff and stuff like that. Yeah, but and, I mean, I think... Well, and, and, and that's not to say, like, I think your point is right. I think we're going to continue seeing the growth of service providers and it'll make less and less sense for organizations to have, like what you said, the, their own computers and their own two, three IT guys. Mm. Um, but you are going to have... You, you will still have large organizations where it does make sense for them to have some internal IT. Mm. Um, and then I think, you know, it, it may just be that the role of, the, of, of those internal IT people changes from, you know, <laughs> we're definitely stretching this analogy, but, but changes from being the guy that, that, you know, built the piece of wood and chucked it off a cliff, you know. <laughs> right, changes from being that to the guy that helps organize uh, travel arrangements, mm-hmm. you know, that they take care of making sure that, you know, people are able to get to where they want to go. That's but maybe a step down from being Buzz Lightyear to be, <laughs> <laughs> be organize your flights and hotels, you know. <laughs> you know, but, but I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like no, I, I said, it, it, we're stretching analogy. the analogy, so, it, but it's, yeah. No, I think that's a good analogy. I mean, I guess yeah. I'm, uh, the reason I've been thinking about this is I was at the Colo uh, last week wiping some boxes, replacing some dead discs. And I got chatting to a guy who didn't know who I was, um, uh-huh. wasn't active in the community, not on Twitter. Right. It does a bit of VMware. And I yeah. said, oh, I, I work for VMware. And we got chatting a little bit. And he's about the same age as me. And as you know, we had a good old chip bag like this. Yeah, yeah. As he's laying, he said, well, you know, it's all going to go to the cloud eventually. And you've got to wonder how long I'll have a job in this industry. And I said, well... I guess it all depends on how rapid that change happens. I'm 43 now. It could be a change that does take 10 or 15 years to take effect. And he said, not me, by then I hope to be retired and I won't care anymore. And it'll be yeah. the next generation that will have to take on the baton and deal with that. Um, I guess the important thing is not to be the person who stops the progress from happening, whatever that progress might be. I never want to be the person who's a roadblock to it because I've seen people who are a roadblock to change and they don't last very long. Who yeah. seem, people who seem to get ahead is people who facilitate change and that change leads to something better or more efficient or more cost-effective than it used to be. But right. um, I, I, get, I, get, I think what my point is is just that I think we forget how immature and how new our industry is. And it's still it really compared to something like aviation, which is, which is relatively new. Is I mean, if you think new, about it, yeah. yeah. Compared to the law or medicine, you know. We've right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's a technology field. Uh, a technology came about that you didn't have before, and then that was commercialized, productized, and then sold. There are similarities there. I also sort of think the way, the way an airline buys its hardware is so different from the way we buy hardware. You know, if I'm, if I'm Air France and I buy 20 Airbus, uh, the the uh, plane arrives and then somebody else fits it out with my designated right. seats sizes and, and areas so there's an element of customer customization but I don't have to test the plane to make sure it doesn't drop out of the sky 
<laughs> and there's right. there's a lot of regulation in the airline industry and in the pharmaceutical industry to validate that we don't right. end up after 10 years of developing a new plane or a new drug that it doesn't kill people right our industry doesn't seem to go through that level of rigor because i guess the argument is if a computer fails it's not the end of somebody's life unless it's in an er room Right. Unless it's a military installation. There are some cases yeah. where it's life and death. But yeah, yeah I, I guess we don't know what the future brings. And that's one of the nice things about our industry. But certainly the whole clown thing is a big one. Yeah. <laughs> How facile is that? The clown thing. It's a big <laughs> one. You know. But anyway, going a bit more prosaic, our, our, our last two topics, I think we can sort of conflate together because they're about sysadmins together, uh, which is... If you're a, a vSphere a guy or intervirtualization, what certifications should you pursue? Is there any point in the advanced certifications? What, what's your view on this? Well, I, I, I'm a little bit conflicted about it because I, I love the idea of, of certs to some extent. I mean, you they're, just don't like working for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I recently, um, I re in the last six months or so, I did... Uh, my uh, two of the VCAP exams, the uh, VMware Certified Advanced Professional ones. I did the uh, DCD uh, Data Center Design and Data Center Administration, okay. and they were both good certs. Um, the the DCA is the administration exam um, is one of the best exams that I, I. It's one of the hardest exams, but one of the best exams I've taken because it's all lab. Right. So it's, um, it, and it's very you know if. If you know how to configure and work within vSphere and be quick and efficient about it, you can pass it. And if you don't, you're not going to. And right. so it's it's a very practical exam. Um, but the the thing that I was kind of wondering about was, you know, like what I, I know that that passing that exam shows me that. Like if I look and see that somebody's passed that exam, that tells me that that they really know what they're doing. Um, but I just I haven't seen. I'm just wondering what the the overall value of of doing that is. Like, how many people out there that are looking to hire know what those certs mean? And is yeah. getting a certification all about employability, or is it about something else? Well, at the end, of, I mean, I think a certification is the point of a certification is to prove to someone. You know, it could be yourself, but it yeah. you know. To, to prove to someone that you know you know a certain thing you know you and and uh, you know different certifications test that to differing levels but the, at the end of the day that's what you're trying to prove you you say I have this certificate that shows that I know XYZ thing mm. um, and so I I wouldn't say that employability is is one of the big things you know is the only thing about getting a certification but you know, if you're if nobody in your company knows what it is or really cares that much that you did it, mm -hmm. and if it doesn't necessarily, you know, it, it doesn't increase your marketability from a job standpoint. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it it helps. You know, maybe there's three parts to it. You know, there's the there's how it helps you feel, how it you know if it changes anything within your company, and then does it change anything? you know, with you in the outside world, you know, the, your employability. Mm. So. Eh. I, 
I mean, the other thing you could argue, there's a great many people in the UK, I don't know what it's like in the US, who manage to get through the whole of their career without any certifications whatsoever and still find themselves getting a job. Right. And there, you know, and there's nothing to say that certifications prove that you're going to be... Any good. A good right, exactly. <laughs> and And that's one of the things I have to say about that DCA exam in particular is that really if if somebody can pass that that's one of those exams that's it would be hard to fake your way through that like if it's you can paper mcse style qualification exactly i mean it's it, there there's there's a it, it's all lab i mean mm. if and, and it and it has a very tight time frame so if if you can't do what you need to do to pass the exam in the time given you know or well if you can do that then i know i know that you can work well in vSphere. You know, that if I give you a task in vSphere, you'll be able to do it relatively quickly mm. and competently. Don't you so. worry that at the rate of change in these technologies, both VMware and Microsoft are now really going towards yearly releases. Right. You know, I think the days of Microsoft spending three or four years to develop a particular operating system are over. You know, you're going to have you really number. think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you really I think mean, they're gonna they're gonna get faster? <laughs> well, I don't think they're gonna get. Well, I don't know whether they're gonna get faster, but the idea of you have an X release and then there's a three or four year gap between your next release. Right. You think the whole industry is gonna go away from that to a process of rolling releases, where every year you have an update or a sub release that adds more features. Right. Uh, I mean, well, I guess they they're Microsoft's already talking about uh, Windows eight point one. So there yeah, you go. But. but yeah. The problem is, is certifications is very much tied to um, um, a particular product and a particular generation of product to make sure that you know you keep your certifications right. up to date. But if there's a, a version 5.1 now and a version 5. <coughs> very shortly, and then by next year a version 6, <coughs> you know, yeah. how are you going to keep your certifications up to date if every year the vendors are bringing out new flavors of their product? Pretty soon right. your certification is going to be out of date, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and that's, you know, that's definitely one of the challenges of certifications as well. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I've heard it called the certification treadmill that, you know, you once you get on, it's hard to get off. Well, God help those people who work in service provider environments where you need at least two of every single vendor that you have in your environment to be well, a gold, gold partner. So you need right. a Cisco guy, you need a Microsoft guy, you need a VMware guy, you need a Jupiter, Juniper guy, you need a storage guy. And like, yeah. God help the person who has to have all those certifications because they well, spend more time doing exams than they do any real work. Yeah, well, it's definitely, the, the smaller your organization, the harder it is. I mean, I, I'm part of a large, uh, a large VAR. And so we have sort of, you know, those certification requirements, but we have, over 1,200 engineers, so we have no problem meeting that. You know, mm -hmm. dividing that load up among that many people is not a problem. So, I, I'll let I'll be honest here. I hate certification with a passion, <laughs> and I speak as a former instructor. <laughs> and so you talk about conflicted. The number of yeah. times you're on a training course, and the reason that people are doing the training course is because I want to do the exam and get the cert. And right. I, I say to them, well, by the way, I hate certification with a passion. For all the reasons I've just sort of mentioned, they expire too quickly, they go out of date, they're of value to you, but it's often difficult to demonstrate whether they really made a difference in you getting a new job or role. And yep. the other thing, a problem I have with is all the vendors act as if the only program that exists is theirs. It's no right. time to update your cert. And what they don't notice is that these people actually have to be multiply certified. 
the one that used to really annoy the pip out of me the most was Citrix. Mm-hmm. So Citrix would bring out a new flavor of uh, MSAM, uh, which right. is now a defunct product, version 1.5. There'd be no feature differences whatsoever in that release. Right. It's a maintenance release to fix bugs. But then they would say to the instructors, you have to take the new exam on the 1.5 release, even though there's no functional difference. And I used to think, why? Why? Yeah. And it, it got to the point when I was a Citrix instructor that I was doing as much grey uncertified work as I was doing certified courses. Right. And I was like, I could just dispense with doing certified work, like authorised training courses, and I could just teach my own stuff. It's the same thing, right. but without right. the the BS of having to do a pointless exam to stay yep. certified. It's a tick boxing yeah. exercise in that particular case. Um, but I don't know. I've, I I speak as a former Novell instructor, Microsoft instructor, Citrix instructor, and former VMware instructor. And I've had like a couple of VCPs. I was I did intend to pursue the vCloud director, VCDIS certification. Because right. I thought, well, that that would be if I spend six months working with vCloud director and then take the exam, that would be something I can put on my things I achieved in quarter one and two, past this certification. Right. But I, I asked my new boss, you know, do you think this is important? And he was like, yeah, if you want to do it, I don't mind, but you know, you don't have to. And I'm like. Okay. <laughs> well, my boss doesn't think I need to do an exam. I don't like taking exams. I'm not I could just take an exam. learn this technology, enjoy it, really know it inside out, but never have to do the exam. Yeah. <sighs> Suddenly, a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Yeah. I, I don't know. The thing I miss about not doing certifications is the rigor that it introduces. Right. Um, the other thing I was going to say is um, who needs certification when you've got Google? Who needs knowledge when I can just Google uh, it and find it out? Well, there's... Yeah, I, I tell that I, I've told that to my wife sometimes that you know half of my half of my job when I was doing sysadmin work was was Google, and she's like, yeah, sure. I mean, there there there's some truth to that that you know part what of your Google's job is. Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but then there's there definitely is how do you apply that knowledge? Because hmm. I mean, Google can help, but you know you it, it takes a certain at least I, 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 my opinion is that it takes, you know, it takes some knowledge and experience to apply that knowledge intelligently. So. Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether it's, I mean, one thing I would say where certification might be really useful is if you're relatively young and you're new to the industry, you haven't really uh, earned your spurs over a long period of time, maybe doing the certification and doing that stuff is is good for your early career development but once right. you've got 10 15 20 years worth of experience maybe the reference and your resume that shows that you've worked in two law firms and a pharmaceutical when you go for your next job which happens to do legal advice to pharmaceuticals they'll go oh he's our man um, right and oh by the way i know his boss that worked in that company yeah, you know, maybe, I, 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 you know, it's a joke that, oh well, a, a well-worn phrase that it's not what you know, but who you know that gets you a job in life, and I think that's right. being translated onto social networks and social media. That's Definitely. how you find about opportunities. So yeah. maybe 
you know, maybe it's useful in your early part of the career, but as it goes on, unless you're working with a, you know, a service provider where it's mandatory in order to have gold, silver, bronze, you must have n number of people. Maybe it's its value diminishes in your career. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that's true in a lot of ways. That as as your career goes on, the the value definitely diminishes, um, and it. You know the the certifications can help more when you don't have that social component. You know when you don't know somebody. You know if you're trying to get into an organization where you don't know anybody, yeah, uh, and nobody knows you. You know maybe that's where it can help. But I mean, I guess I'm going to make a bit of a joke here. When I was an instructor, <laughs> I could have said to my students, uh, "You can trust me that you're going to get a, a really good course because I got 85 percent on the VCP exam, which is what instructors had to get." And right. they would have gone, all right. Or I could have said, you can trust me, I wrote this big fat book. Right, yeah. You know, so there are ways, of, I mean, I'm not, without trying to blow me on trumpet, but I think there are ways and means of demonstrating your abilities, skills, and talents, which have nothing to do with taking 80, 80 questions in a booth over an hour and a half period. And, and get, I mean, I think that style of certification, I think what's interesting about what you were saying about the, the DCA being right. hands-on on lab, a lot. Of, I've heard that an awful lot about the Cisco certifications, where you get a live environment and you have to troubleshoot and fix it. Those yeah. certifications, I think, are infinitely more valuable. The trouble with those is that with real hands-on testing, is who uses all the features in these various products, right? And who's to say that one particular feature or component is more important than another? You know, right? I, I mean, I don't know what you got tested. Uh, I mean, maybe you had to fix a V switch problem. I yeah. don't know, as an example. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what that V switch problem might be. Like the wrong NIC is attached to it, or a VLAN is incorrect, or something like that. I don't know what what any number of right. errors could be. But who's to say that is an error that you've experienced, that you've had that experience, and therefore you know, you know what I mean? How, when yeah. it's that vast. How in a two or three hour lab do you pick out the bits that people should know? Yeah, it's you know definitely one of the challenges with with a cert you know with any kind of certification. Yeah. So. My my other issue with certification is it always makes me laugh when people used to come out with them and say, "I got ninety percent," or "I got eighty seven percent," or "I just scraped the exam and got eighty percent." I right. used to say to them, all the questions are randomized. No one person sees the same questions as the next. Therefore, from a examination perspective, your percentage is largely meaningless because right. unless we were all doing the same exam with the same questions, there'd be no way of actually working out what the high watermark and what the low mark watermark should be. It, it just right. means that out of the questions you got, you managed yeah. to answer this number of them. It doesn't well, mean my... you're any cleverer than the person who got 75%. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, my favorite one, my my favorite quote for uh, related to certifications is, um, and, and well, and specifically scores for certifications, sure. is is the uh, do you know what they call the guy that graduated last in his class from medical school? What's the answer? Doctor. <laughs> and on that, we're going to wrap up because outside my window, I can see the letting agent is arriving. Okay. To, uh, to, uh, I'm, I'm renting out the house that we're in when we want to move somewhere else, so I need to sort okay. of let them in. 
Um, okay. What, what people don't know is that there was an hour's worth of chat before we even started <laughs> recording. Yeah. So uh, I can see she's getting out of the car now. I'll okay. Wait um, um, I'm going to stop recording. This is the weirdest ending to a chinwag ever. But thank you very much for being on the chinwag. And, yeah, thank uh, you, Mike. I need to be on your podcast next so we can answer, have a go at the last question, which was all about speaking at VMUGS. And Sounds like a plan. Are for you, but we'll, we'll carry this on on your podcast. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Take Thanks, Mike. Bye -bye. You too.